Welcome to the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. And now your host of the show, Dr. Jennifer K. Thompson. Hi, thanks for joining us today. You're about to hear a conversation that I recently had with Stephanie Slade, who is the managing editor at Reason. Uh, Reason describes itself, it's a libertarian magazine, and it describes itself as the magazine of free minds and free markets. If you're not familiar with it, uh, you can still get it in print form, I think on a monthly basis, but it being 2020 and all, they of course also have a website and a number of web properties. And on those various properties, they uh, get more than 4 million visits per month. So you can imagine that Stephanie is a very busy person as the managing editor, but also that Reason is a significant political site for a lot of different people. So Stephanie, before she worked at Reason, was a speechwriter. She's worked in polling. She is a journalist herself and has contributed to a number of outlets. And in fact, it's it's one of those pieces she's done outside of Reason that prompted us to get in touch today and say, you know, hey, let's talk about this. She had a piece at the end of August in the opinion section of the New York Times, and the title of the piece was Republicans are ripping out the very heart and soul of their party. Very provocative title. And that very heart and soul is a reference to something that Ronald Reagan said. Ronald Reagan said that he believed that the very heart and soul of conservatism was libertarianism. So Stephanie has been spending some time thinking about, reading about, and writing about a move in conservatism um, away from libertarianism and free market thinking. Now, you might say, well, that sounds pretty specific. And I'm also not a conservative or a Republican, so what does it matter to me? You know, one of the things we're interested in at Civil Squared is getting people to have civil conversations about all kinds of things, including their political values. And so we thought it would be really important to talk with Stephanie about what she's seeing as someone who pays a lot of attention both to libertarian thinking, conservative thinking, and as someone who has a perspective on the history of all this. So we're going to talk about kind of the background, the history of the conservative movement, about where things stand today and how that might impact the future. And you're going to hear in this conversation that the way we use various words can sometimes trip things up in political discussion. So we want to be really, really specific about what we mean when we're talking about conservatives or when we're talking about Republicans and are all Republicans conservatives and all conservatives Republicans, etc. Those are things that affect conversations we have. So we asked Stephanie to talk to us about what she's seeing. And I think regardless of your own political ideology, you're going to find what she has to say interesting. Thank you for joining us. Is this like the greatest thing ever in your profession to have an election year? Or is it like election years come around and you're like, oh, it's a little bit of both. Um, I think everybody who works as a political journalist got into the business because we love politics and we love the sort of rush that comes with covering, you know, history happening in real time. Um, I will I will say that these this this election cycle and the last one have been more exhausting and frustrating than usual. 
and it's taken some some you know perseverance on our part <laughs> to stick with it but um but it, but it, you know we still are we are getting to write the first draft of history as they say and that's a that's a privilege and a cool thing to be a part of yeah when you say the last election cycle do you mean like 2018 or do you mean 2016 for the presidential 2016 yeah, yeah. Okay. the the it, Donald Trump has just thrown everything off. It, it, it has been, these two elections have been unlike any other, you know. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that. Well, and I think that's a, a place to kind of get into what we want to talk about today, which is especially the writing that you've been doing about conservative conservatism lately. But before we do that, I mean, I think that when we think about these elections, 2016, 2020, I think most people... I. Well, I wonder if most people think, like you're describing it, it's throwing things off, like it's different than in the past. My view, I suppose, would be that these have been different from a lot of other elections, in part because of the toxicity, the vitriol that's going on. I mean, I I think there's probably people who would say, well, that always happens in an election year, and there's always kind of nasty campaign ads and that sort of thing something feels different about what what's going on now, right? It does. Yeah, I think that that's fair. I mean, and not to downplay the the toxicity or the polarization in, in, of the past, but this does seem to be, um, it does seem to be a worsening problem. And I think that the political science literature bears that out. And there are lots of different, you know, multifarious causes, but um, it, it's a thing we all have to sort of, we're, we're living through that. So we have to figure out how to deal with it. Yeah, for sure. So we have Republicans and we have Democrats. Uh, That's the practical kind of political application of it. We have liberals and conservatives, which historically one might say matched up with political parties, Republicans being conservative, Democrats being liberal. Is that fair? That is definitely how we have talked about it in this country. There is an added uh, sort of confusion because the word liberal has it has two different meanings that depending on the context. So liberal can mean sort of left of center associated with the Democratic Party, and that's I think a fair a fair you know and colloquial way of using that word. Um, but but historically, liberal also has has meant any sort of philosophy that has that gives pride of place to individual liberty. If you think individual liberty, individual rights, individual freedom are important, then you're a liberal in that sense. And in that in that sense. American conservatives have many of us, at least, you know, many of them have been historically uh, liberals as well, which is a sort of confusing use of language. How can you be a liberal conservative? But, or, but that's actually um, George Orwell famously said, um, you know, in, a, in America, everybody's a liberal, actually, because the American founding was founded on liberal, liberal principles in that sense of, you know, committed to individual rights and individual liberty. So, in saying that too, I wonder if there's a sense in which some of the polarization we have today is a function of that first sense of being a liberal not being shared anymore. But but part of what I want to talk about with you is we'll leave aside the colloquial, colloquial way we talk about liberal and conservative um, and focus instead on that conservative piece in the colloquial, right? So I think this is maybe a fair way to say this. I think for a lot of people, if you think, what does it mean to be a conservative? 
That would have meant limited government. That would have meant socially conservative, um, typically as part of the conservative point of view, there have been more socially conservative um, policy positions. Um, And you even say in a piece you wrote last year, this was like 2019, uh, you say you're probably old enough to remember a time when conservatives opposed the idea that it was the federal government's job to solve most problems. A time when they thought that individuals, families, and community groups, not politicians, were responsible for building a good life in a good society. A time when they believed that government power should be devolved whenever possible to the state and local level away from the bloated behemoth in Washington. Right. Uh, my first, I guess my first question about that is, how old do you think people have to be to remember that time? Because I, I personally would say that if we associate conservatism with the Republican Party, for instance, you know, I can think of plenty of big calls on the federal government by the Republican Party for quite some time back, like to the 2000s, even before, big, huge federal programs that were meant to solve problems. Um, is that what you're thinking about? Or are you thinking, no, it's gotten even worse in the last 10 or eight or four years or whatever? I would say that this, in this instance, I'm going to start by di- uh, distinguishing between conservative and Republican, because it's absolutely true. I mean, what you just said is absolutely correct. The Republican Party has often uh, not not lived out its, quote, conservative values. It, when, it, when Republicans are in power, they often outspend, you know, the budget. They drive, there's even some studies that suggest that debt and deficits are worse under Republican presidents than under Democratic presidents, because when Republicans are in power, they don't have the incentive to, to rein in spending. Um, they only seem to want to fight against sort of government spending when the Democrats are in power. So, um, whereas the Democrats are willing to spend regardless of who's in power. Um, but as far as conservative sort of political philosophy historically, um, it was always sort of understood to be a, a big, a major component of it was um, believing in, in individual liberty and limited government. So if you go back to the 1930s, conservatives were opposed to the New Deal, big, you know, big government, lots of spending. Uh, if you go back to the 1950s, um, you have the, the William F. Buckley launching National Review, which was the sort of you know, flagship magazine of the conservative movement. And when he did that, he said, you know, I'm launching this magazine because too many years have gone by since the philosophy of freedom have been expounded systematically. And it's time for somebody to step up and do that. And in, in the um, first issue of National Review, when they sort of laid out their mission statement, they said, we, su- we support libertarian economics, basically free markets, free trade, deregulation, you know, less government spending, small government. Um, Reagan used to, at least rhetorically, if not in terms of what he actually did while, while he was in the White House, talked a lot about the importance of liberty and limited government and government being the problem, not the solution. I mean, conservatives have always uh, at least in terms of their rhetoric, in terms of what they claimed to be for, it was it was always heavily inflected with limited government, individual freedom. It, that is not that is not to deny the fact that when Republicans have been in power, they have often not lived up to that standard that they set for themselves. I think that's totally fair and true. But when you think about what is the the conservative political philosophy historically, um, this has been a major component of it all along. Okay, so this is I think a really important point then to say when you're talking about conservatism, it is not 
necessarily coincident with the Republican Party, right? Um, if conservatism had a political home, it was more likely to be with the Republican Party. But you just mentioned a number of examples where just because Republicans were in power, they did not operate on conservative principles, whether they held them ideologically or not. They didn't necessarily practically apply them. That's correct. Okay. So in your, in that piece that I just read from the article you had last, a year ago in the summer, I think, you were at a conference, um, a net, was it a national conservatism conference? Right. And, and you tell me if I'm wrong about this, but as I was reading that piece, I was thinking, I, I kind of imagined you sitting at this conference and sort of being a little taken aback by what you were hearing there. Yeah, definitely. Um, this sort of new national conservative movement, this, it's a sort of resurgence because nationalism is nothing new, but conservative nationalism in America, as we're seeing it propounded right now, and as, as, as was on display at this conference last summer, was, I mean, it was disconcerting. Um, it was explicitly in favor of um, government intervention, federal government intervention into the economy. So there was a debate in which um, the side that was favoring industrial policy uh, won at this conference. They, the, the idea was that the federal government should be spending lots of money on infrastructure, research and development, subsidies for American manufacturing companies. We should be supporting tariffs. We should be limiting immigration. It's a very um, interventionist economic plan. Um, and, and this is, again, this is just not what you would tend to think about, think of when you imagine a conservative um, economic policy or program, policy agenda. So it's a departure. I think this is a real, I think it's fair to say that this is a real, um, in fact, I describe it in a more recent piece as um, a fault line opening up on the political right. So there, there, there is a divide now, I call the great liberalism schism is kind of what I, the, the phrase I use. Um, where you have those of us who still want individual freedom and limited government, and you have those who say, you know what, we tried that and we don't like where it got us, and so now it's time to support big, robust uh, government that is um, in, in involved in people's lives in order to push a conservative agenda. Okay, so now I'm going to try and rephrase, and because I think what you're talking about in terms of ideology is really important, and I also want to think about the practical application. So I'm going to say I'm a conservative. Let's say that I'm a conservative, which means I want limited government. I want local solutions to things. I want individual liberty protected. Okay. That's my ideology. Right now, when it comes to political parties, I don't have a home because there's no political party, major political party that is trying to protect those things. Is that fair? Well, it depends if, I guess, if you think that the Libertarian Party counts as a major political party. Yeah, okay, fair enough, yeah. Um, it, I, I think it's fair to exclude them. I mean, the Libertarian Party has never gotten even 5% of the presidential vote. The next president of the United States is not going to be from the Libertarian Party. So if you're looking at the two parties that have a realistic chance and you're trying to decide who should I vote for and you are somebody, you know, of the philosophical persuasion that you just described, yeah, you're a little homeless right now. Yeah. I think a lot of us are feeling that way. Yeah. And when we talk about not political parties, but the ideology itself and the people who espouse that ideology, you're saying, you know, however it translates into the practical part of the political realm, 
I'm probably homeless even among people who think of themselves that way, regardless of political party. There is, there is little support among people who you used to think of as conservatives for that limited government. There is enthusiasm well, for bigger, bigger government-led intervention. I would say there's a reason I describe it as a schism. I would not mm -hmm. say that the entire conservative movement has gone all en masse in this direction of big government, central government, you know, um, top-down economic planning, that sort of thing. I would say there's a divide now. And um, the, the nationalist conservatives or the bigger government conservatives, I think, are definitely ascendant at this moment. Donald Trump has self-identified as a nationalist. Um, they're putting on these major conferences. They're, they're starting new think tanks. There's a lot of energy and attention around this push. Um, but there are, there is a, there certainly are a lot of conservatives, you know, left behind going, wow, this is not at all what we are in favor of. And we're a little disturbed by what we see happening. So I wouldn't say that it was, that it's like, you know, you, if you, if you are one of those people, you're alone. I think there are quite a few of us who's, who, who are feeling this way. Um, and, and even just today, I think, in National Review magazine, uh, Andy Smerich had a great long piece where he says, from the perspective of a conservative writing in a conservative magazine, he said, let me explain to you why, from conservative first principles, I think this, this move is a mistake. Mm -hmm. So there definitely are people pushing back against it. Um, but uh, the fact that the, that the illiberal or the, the people on the other side of the schism, the big government conservatives, um, exist at all, and are getting so much attention and having so much success politically right now is, I think, a phenomenon, you know, that's, that's noteworthy and remarkable. And worrisome, worrisome. for somebody who cares, who cares about this. Yeah. Right. So I, this was really interesting to me. You had a piece uh, at the end of August in the New York Times in the opinion um, section. I think it was in the opinion section. Yes. And you quoted a Pew Research Center study that says, 65% of Americans uh, say that free trade agreements have been a good thing for the United States. Uh, and that's up from 45%, up from 45% just before the 2016 election. Um, so during President Trump's protectionist first term, this is you, support for international commerce has robustly increased. You also talk about other polling, uh, Gallup poll from last September, a year ago, 87% of Americans have a positive view of free enterprise, and 70% think business can do things more efficiently than government can. And importantly, these results hold regardless of party affiliation, right? So whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, and I'm assuming it's for the most part Republicans and Democrats who are being polled here, um, but they are stronger on the right. Those feelings are stronger on the right about free enterprise. Uh, only 7% of Republicans said there was too little government regulation of business and industry, for example, compared with 46% of Democrats. So this is interesting to me because what it says is the person on the street is actually closer to that conservative position than what we see manifested in policy. Right. Um, at least according to the poll polls that have been conducted in the last year by reputable, you know, Pew and, and Gallup are, are good, solid uh, research institutions. Um, they suggest that there's still, we're still a country of people who support free markets and free trade and individual liberty. 
And, and that is important because um, it suggests, ironically, it suggests that the, the folks in power right now who are pushing big government and government intervention and sort of top-down economic planning um, may be out of touch with the common man. And what's ironic about that is that that was sort of what was assumed to be the case about the previous conservative agenda. People said, oh, Trump won because the Republican Party had lost touch with um, rural, uh, rural voters, for example, yeah. who were feeling that they were left behind in the economy, and so they voted for Donald Trump. Well, I think this polling suggests that probably something else might have been going on. And the explanation for, you know, the support, electoral support for Trump in 2016, perhaps has another explanation, because the polls do not suggest that, that the Republican base and that the country as a whole have rejected free markets and free trade. And yet the Trump administration clearly has rejected these things. I mean, Trump is all about tariffs, protectionism, uh, subsidies for American manufacturers, punitive taxes on any company that might open up a factory in another country, because those would be, you know, sending jobs overseas. I mean, he's all about top-down, you know, federal government dictating to private businesses how they should be run. Um, and I, I just think that this, this should at least give us a little bit of pause about whether that is not, I, I think there's no question in my mind that that's bad policy, that that's actually gonna, gonna impoverish and immiserate the country over time. But whether it's even good politics, uh, this, these polls suggest that probably, probably it may be missing the mark uh, at least there's there's good reason to to think that it may be missing the mark um, in terms of gauging where Americans are and how how they approach economics. Yeah, and does to me as I listen to you talk about that, on the one hand, I'm sort of it makes me a little more optimistic to think well, most people do hold some of those conservative principles. They're not being borne out in policy. So there's this disconnect. But I really worry, given what has happened since, you know, those polls uh, in the latter part of 2019, with everything that's happened in 2020, that the same people, even if they are pro-trade, pro-free market, um, more open to immigration, you know, that kind of thing, that, that what's happened this year puts people in that frame of mind that, well, that might be true when times are good, but right now times are really bad. This is a crisis. And we know that in the midst of a crisis, government tends to grow. And so if there were already, if there was already that disconnect there, now is it worse because whatever was being borne out in policy is going to get closer because the average person is going to say, hey, I'm all for limited government, except I lost my job. My business is closed, you know? Um, are you worried that it's even worse because of that? It's definitely a complicating factor. Um, and I have no doubt that if these polls were conducted right now in the middle of, of the COVID pandemic, the results would, would look different. Uh, no question about that. But I think there are, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that there are some lessons that can be drawn out of this experience that might actually um, sort of point in a different direction. So some obvious ones are, you know, how, how good of a job, how effective was the federal government at preparing for and then responding to this crisis? I, you know, I don't see it as being even a little bit controversial to say they whiffed that one pretty bad. And, that, and the lesson from that, I think, should be, hey, government isn't very good at things. And the more power and the more responsibility we, we give to government, the more we expect government to be able to do, especially the central government in Washington, D.C., um, the, the more we are creating opportunities for these massive failures um, at scale. So that's one lesson. Uh, um, another lesson is 
that if you do believe that the government has more more of an obligation and a sort of um, prerogative, uh, it, it's more it's more legitimate um, and appropriate for government to to be involved in during times of true crisis. Um, ask yourself, you know, how financially um, set up were we to be able to step in and help people in this moment of crisis? Um, you know, based on the sort of spending patterns of the last few decades? The answer is we were already trillions of dollars, trillions upon trillions of dollars in debt. Yeah. Um, during good times, we were not doing the responsible thing and putting money away for a rainy day. We were, we were spending far beyond our means. We were growing government, you know, irresponsibly. Again, this was a bipartisan endeavor. Both yeah. parties were doing it. And what that meant was that when a really true, I mean, unprecedented, once in a, once in a century at best, moment came along where there, where there really was a need, true need for, um, for people to be assisted. Because I mean, the, the federal government or well, the government at different levels shut down the economy so that people could not make a living. They could not provide for themselves. I think there is a really strong argument to be made that in a case like that, yeah, there, there is a role for, 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 this, for the government in, in helping people to support themselves um, temporarily during, during a moment like that. But the money wasn't there, right? We were we we just we had already had the largest deficit of all time this past year um, before the crisis even hit, and now we're going to have. I mean, it's it's actually mind-boggling the size of the federal <laughs> deficit this year. What it's going to be after this after this moment. So I think that there are lessons that can be drawn. Like, okay, going forward, let's try to be more responsible during good times, so that we are prepared for the bad times, so that it, so that we do not find ourselves in a position like this again in the future. You don't necessarily have to draw lessons that well. Uh, those conservatives with their with their you know limited government commitments, they, um, they you know they they didn't they don't have it right, and and this pandemic proves it. I think you could. It's not hard to draw. I think precisely the opposite conclusion, actually. I mean, on the one hand, I want to say, like. I'm with you. I would like us to take the lesson from this that we we should be more responsible in the good times so that when the bad times come, we're in a better position to deal with them because the bad times are inevitably going to come. And we should have, we should look at what's going on and what has happened and say, hey, we've talked about this before, not just on this podcast, but in some of the stuff we've written where, you know, this is the first time I've heard anybody talk about federalism for a long, long time, right? Talking about the va- the importance of states doing things versus the federal government and that kind of thing. I hope that's right, but I guess, I guess I'm a little worried about it. And actually reading, reading your pieces on conservatism makes me even a lot, makes, makes me even more worried because I think the places where I would have gone to see people who are really pushing that those principles have said you know what look we understand now that we need to use this power to it's it's not working out to focus on individual liberty it's not working out to focus on small government if we really want change we have to give those things up that's what i that's what i hear in the people that you're quoting and, you know, even some of the, the symposium that you, you reference um, in the American conservative of all places, right? That's really worrisome. I mean, what are we going to, am I, am I taking what you're saying and being too alarmist about it? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I'm alarmed as well. And that's why I've been spending so much time uh, writing about this. I, I'm, I'm worried by what I see. Um, but I also have to always remind myself 
you know, to keep these things in perspective. So that's why I think that that piece I wrote for the New York Times where I, I cited the data from Gallup and Pew is important. It's important to be, to, um, to just sort of, um, you know, look at what the numbers actually say about where Americans are, um, because there, there's just strong evidence that, that the, again, what, I've, what I'm calling the sort of will to power conservatives or the nationalist conservatives, the big government conservatives, whatever label you, you prefer for them, um, that they may be getting out ahead of actually even their own base, even the conservative base. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, these political battles have to be fought and, and these debates have to be had and, and they're, they're fighting to move the sort of center of gravity in that direction towards more government. And so it's important to fight back. That's sort of what I see myself as doing is existing to pro help, pro you know, be one of the voices articulating the other side. And again, I'm not alone. I, there, are, there are a lot of people who are doing this as well. Um, but it's a live debate. It's a live issue. And the fact that, the fact that you know, uh, majorities of Americans support immigration and support free trade, or, or did as of last year, last fall at least, um, is encouraging, but it's also not a thing to take for granted, I think. Yeah, yeah. So we do, we talk a lot about what, you know, the the polarization and people finding uh, these these polls are a little older now, but uh, there was a Pew poll that uh, in the last five years, certainly, that talked about, you know, one in six people in the United States have stopped talking to somebody in their family because of political difference. Uh, it might be higher than that now, I don't know. So for the person who's listening, who has these disagreements with family members, with friends, that there, you know, there was this Cato poll that was out just recently, Cato and YouGov, that said, you know, 60, something like 62% of Americans don't want to talk about their political viewpoints because they're afraid they're going to offend somebody. Uh, and yet people also, a not insignificant number of people think that if you found out somebody who was the head of a a company had made a personal political donation to someone of the other party that they should lose their jobs or the candidate that they don't like, right? So this is a real issue, right? I mean, that people feel stifled. They feel like they're at odds. Um, I can't tell you the number of times I have heard in the past week even, you know, things about this is an election for the soul of our country. I mean, like the stakes are so high and, and I'm not suggesting they're not high. What I'm saying is that kind of talk does make all of this so fraught and so dangerous to have conversations about. What you have talked about, not just with those polls from last year, that there is strong support among most Americans for things that are conservative principles, right? Um, or part of conservative ideology. Those are things we probably have in common at some level, right? There's a place to start talking there. So if you're talking to someone who's saying, look, you know, not only am I nervous about what's going on, I'm worried about things like what you talked about with debt and everything else and where we are today and the fact that we've got this election coming up and maybe it's a battle for the soul of the country and all that. With the things that you're concerned about and with the fact that you are somebody who is squarely interested in preserving that conservative ideology, right? And the old school liberal, what do you say to people about how they should kind of relate to one another? What can they be doing to, to have productive discussion about this kind of stuff? 
I wish I had the answer to that. <laughs> that <laughs> isn't this your area of specialty? <laughs> That's right. That is a great answer, by the way. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, yeah, it's funny because I was looking through uh, even the piece for October of 2020 and looking at the comments on Reason, which are always fun to look at no matter what the piece is, right? But it's funny because, you know, I don't think anybody's thanking you for pointing this out, uh, or there are a lot of people who aren't thanking you for pointing this out. It's kind of a, um, you've taken on a, a noble but thankless task of trying to raise this. Uh, and I think the other challenge is probably people do want to apply it squarely right onto some kind of political thing. Like, okay, so tell me what I should do. How should I vote now, Stephanie, based on that? I'm not asking you to tell me how to vote, but I think that, you know, it's kind of like throw your hands up in the air and say, well, gosh, what do we do about it? Now, you're writing about it and you're trying to bring our attention to it. Who are other people that we could read and listen to who are on the same page in terms of trying to shore up these foundations? Sure. Um, I have been um, sort of compiling a list of people who I, I enjoy reading because they make me feel awesome. less alone. <laughs> good, good, good. Um, so I think uh, Jonah Goldberg and David French and what they're doing at the Dispatch um, is great. Um, I think Shadi Hamid at Brookings. So let me just take a, a quick step back and say that one interesting potential opportunity here is that I think there are people on both left and right. So not people who, who previously would identify or, or, or today would identify at all as conservatives, but who also see this schism opening up on the left because there's also the same, same divide between individual liberty um, or sort of big powerful state government happening on the left of center. Um, and there's some opportunities to sort of, for the people who are on what I would call the classical liberal, you know, individ pro-individual liberty side of that schism, whether, you, whether you're left or right of center, if you're in favor of individual liberty, I hope that we can kind of come together and maybe find some common ground. Yeah, so um, looking at people like Shadi Hamid at Brookings, who is definitely, I mean, I think he was a Bernie Sanders supporter. Like he is not, he is not a conservative by any, under any definition, but he believes um, he's, he's a sort of liberal in, in this old fashioned sense um, of, of that term. I mentioned Andy Smerick, um, who um, recently took a new job, I believe at the Manhattan Institute, um, but he, he writes widely about this sort of thing and does, does great work. Robbie George at no. Princeton, as far as if you, want, if you want some people who are doing academic research um, and sort of doing more, more theoretical stuff. Ryan Anderson at the Heritage Foundation has done some good work. Uh, Damon Linker uh, as, as another one, he writes for The Week and he is, um, again, I don't, I don't know that he would consider himself to be right of center even, but, mm -hmm. um, but he's definitely a liberal in this sense. So there's, there's certainly like plenty of people out there. And also at Reason Magazine, this is sort of our whole reason for being. So I would encourage yeah. you to come and check out all of my colleagues there. Now we're a libertarian magazine, not a conservative magazine. So you kind of got to know what you're getting yourself into. Sure. But, um, but we absolutely are. I mean, this sort of economic freedom and individual liberty was always the area of overlap between conservatives and libertarians yeah. um, historically. I do. I like what you just said. I mean, I think this is really important that there's an opportunity to find some common ground that otherwise we might, we might not be looking at because it's just too easy to get into the us versus them here. And especially with those polls, uh, what those polls suggest is it is us for the most part. It is us that, that actually appreciate and want to preserve some really important stuff. And in some ways we're all a little politically homeless on that. And, um, 
it's an opportunity to to say, hey, how do you feel about these things? What do you and, and we may find common ground we didn't know actually existed because we're taking it out of the political realm at some level to talk about it. Yeah. So what are you uh, is it is it fair to call this a project talking about the liberalism schism um, about, you know, I mean, you've had the piece in the New York Times, you've written several pieces for reason. Are you continuing to work on that? Is this something that's going to turn into something longer? What's what's the plan for if we can call this a project? It's an informal project, I guess. Uh, I don't have a any kind of formal plan, but I definitely do con- you know intend to continue following this. I think it is so important. And, um, and it, I don't think, well, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the election because that will definitely change the contours of the debate, right? Uh, the Republican party and, and Republicans and conservatives always behave differently when there's a Democrat in power, a Democrat in the White House. Yeah. Um, they, they tend to suddenly rediscover their fiscally conservative bona fides. So suddenly debt and deficits scare them again when there's a Democrat in the White House. So, you know, it will be different if Joe Biden wins in November. Um, mm. And, and, the, and the, again, the debate may look a little bit different and that will be that will be instructive. And I'm I'm I learned my lesson four years ago not to make predictions yeah. about how elections are going to turn out. So we're just going to have to wait and see with no that doubt. one. Yeah, no doubt. That's for sure. And in terms of any um, sort of in our audience, people who do care really about these kind of things and these principles, um, is there a sense? I mean, part of me thinks that one it's sort of a it's sort of a distraction that what happens at the national level because when it comes down to in our communities right and thinking about protecting a lot of these principles and thinking about free enterprise and that you know um, regardless of how we're voting people down the street um, are trying to keep their businesses open they're trying to keep their jobs that kind of thing Um, do you think there are parallels to this at the local level, or is this primarily a, a problem at the national level of thinking about the scale of business? Are we doing this? I mean, are we doing this even in our communities, expecting kind of solutions that we we shouldn't we shouldn't look for from government? I think what we have seen um, over decades, but accelerating in, in recent years has been um, a crowding out of local and individual and private um, energies by an assumption that, well, the federal, that's the federal government's job and they're gonna deal with it. And I pay my taxes and so I don't have to worry about what's, you know, what, about solving these problems. That's not my job. I have a life to live. It's the government's job and, and the entirety of my responsibilities to my brothers and sisters, you know, my fellow man, it's, consists in me paying my taxes and um, you know, voting once every other year or once every four years. And that's a problem actually, because um, the, one of the, the distinguishing marks of the American character, you know, going back to the founding, going back to Tocqueville, was the sort of um, the, the robust civil society, the way that we as, as individuals um, would band together in voluntary associations of, of a whole variety of kinds in order to solve problems. I mean, we're talking, and this, and this is, um, you know, from, from like your neighborhood group and your, or your church, um, your, your labor union, 
you know, whatever the case may be, there are, there are, there are just these sort of um, this whole web of civil society institutions, what they call inter, you know, intermediary institutions between the individual person and the government far away. And that those groups and those institutions were supposed to be the first line of defense and the first, you know, this is where problems are supposed to be solved, if at all possible. And only if they just cannot, it cannot be done at that level, should the government then step in. Um, but we've lost that that yeah. sort of that sense, and I think that I I really think that the reason is as the federal government has grown has grown, and has taxed people more and spent more money and taken upon itself more responsibilities, it has it has sort of um, a residual or a result of that has been to create apathy in people. We we don't yeah. we no longer think that pro it, it's our responsibility to solve problems, um, and that's what we've lost. So it's not so much that I think at the local level people are demanding that 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 the wrong person um, at the local level solve problems it's that they're they're trying to push all all responsibility up to washington and expect somebody very far away to do something about it so that i don't have to think about it anymore. yeah that's not healthy i hope you enjoyed our conversation if you want to read the pieces that we referenced in our discussion the New York Times piece and the two reason pieces that Stephanie has written on this subject. You can find those in the show notes or links to those in the show notes. When I think about our conversation and how it's going to affect my own thinking and my conversations with other people, I think the most important thing that I took away from this is that Stephanie, who's someone who thinks professionally about um, libertarianism and conservatism, is is working this out herself. She's she's observing things and she's writing about them, and you know she sees she has tons of information about it, but she's looking at it and saying, hey, something interesting is happening here. And some other people are saying, yeah, I see that too. And then there's some people who are saying, well, I'm not sure I do see this. I mean, it's complicated, right? And so I think about when we have conversations with other people, how we ascribe certain ideas or beliefs to them when they tell us something about their ideology. So someone in a conversation says to me, well, I'm a conservative. Do I know what that means? Do I just assume right off the bat that that person believes X, Y, or Z? I think my conversation with Stephanie says to me, I better not make those assumptions. And in fact, I better ask some questions because if I really want to have productive conversations, that requires some understanding of the people I'm talking to. And if I jump to conclusions about what it means when they say they're conservative, this would work the same way if they said they were liberal, do I know what that means? Have they thought through really carefully what that means and can they articulate it before we get any further and start, you know, fighting over policy recommendations? Maybe we better understand what we mean when we describe ourselves or when other people describe themselves as a certain kind of political ideology. I think Stephanie's work is helping me think about that, but I'm definitely gonna be a lot more attentive to that when I'm talking to other people. Thanks again for joining us today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Civil Squared Podcast, where we explore civil discourse and the free exchange of ideas. We'll see you next time for another conversation.